Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bruski and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. And welcome to another week from what has turned into a gorgeous uh, end of summer here in Wisconsin. And, you know, we all deserve it. It has been, uh, it's, tr- it's kind of traumatic right now living in Wisconsin and living in the world. Uh, but uh, we are short. Claire Zauke this week. Claire is on vacation. Well-deserved, of course. Uh, But Robert Craig, our executive director here at Citizen Action, is with us. Robert, good to have you with us. Well, I'd say good day, everyone, except with the news this week, I would say it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine is the feeling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So uh, obviously, Robert is referencing it's there's there's been a ton of news this week. We may not get to it all. Uh, It is. Labor Day weekend this week. And so we are going to spend some time looking at the state of work in Wisconsin. And we'll be joined later in the show by Laura Dresser uh, from COWS. They released this week their annual State of Working Wisconsin, which is, you know, it's the seminal report from a worker's perspective about what's going on. And so we'll be really happy to talk with Laura later in the show. Uh, But we are going to start the show by talking about the the big news that broke, quite frankly, last night, we record Thursday mornings, uh, late Wednesday, the Supreme Court in a very, it's shocking, although not with this court, but, you know, took a, a, a shocking action. It very much shows the conservative move. It sort of appears could, could be the first step in banning abortion uh, by not staying the Texas verdict. Robert, wanted to just go to you first. Tanya will be joining us briefly, but wanted to quick get your thoughts on this, uh, this news. Okay. There's been an all-out right-wing plan, and it's been in alliance with corporate America because the judges to do this are the same judges that allow corporate America to off the hook from all responsibility and accountability for their actions at the expense of average people. But they have, over decades, engineered a right-wing majority court, and the final part of it was the steal of the seat, where unprecedented, uh, we have, a, we have a, a death of a Supreme Court justice, Anton, Antonin Scalia, about a year before the election, and Mitch McConnell, really at the behest of these forces, and the business committee refuses to appoint the seat, and so Trump gets three appointments. And this was done by 5-4. Uh, In other words, the chief justice, who is a Bush appointee, uh, was not with them, was with the with the moderates. I mean, the three are not that liberal. okay? but they're just not crazy. Right. They keep being called the liberals. They're not that liberal. They're not Bernie Sanders liberal. And so there's been a legal strategy. There's been every kind of legislative strategy to take away this fundamental right. And in fact, we have a Mississippi case, other cases heading the Supreme Court already. Uh, but this is an end around. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's civil vigilante enforcement, so the state isn't doing it. And this was a fig leaf for the justices to say that somehow it was not the abrogation of a, of a almost 50-year-old pre- Supreme Court precedent that this is a fundamental right, a woman's right to choose. And so we have the second largest state in the country because it's made it and we, we can go through the details with, with Tanya Atkinson, the, the real expert, where no, no, no provider, no women's health center can, can 
provide the service because of the of the liability involved. And so it is shut down all abortions. So you don't have to worry about vigilantes running around the state. Uh, there will there are no abort no legal abortions in Texas, and the Supreme Court just allowed it to happen by five to four, and just before midnight. Well, thanks, Robert, for setting the stage. We are now joined by the aforementioned Tanya Atkinson. Tanya is the director of Planned Parenthood Advocates here in Wisconsin. Tanya, thanks for joining us. And I should mention original panelist on this show. We really do appreciate you uh, coming back on a very somber day, but to talk to us and give us some more information from your perspective and Planned Parenthood's perspective about the decision from the Supreme Court. Yeah, thank you, Matt. I definitely wish I was back on a different day. We'll have to we'll have to find another time to 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 come back and we can have we can have a little fun. Today is definitely not is definitely not a fun day for uh, people in Texas who need an abortion and um, and across the country because it really um, it 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 really signals uh, what the you know what's happening across the country and. You know, and in, and in Texas, um, and I and I caught just the the end of of what Robert was saying. This impacts real people, and I think that's you know this is not this is not a political game. This is not a a wedge issue um, to turn out a certain group of voters. These are these are real human beings who need access to real healthcare, and abortion is healthcare. And um, between you know one and five people who need an abortion will, or one or five people will have an abortion at some point in their lifetime. And, you know, so this, this is real healthcare that people aren't able to access. And when people can't access care, abortion doesn't go away. Abortion becomes unsafe. When abortion is illegal, people die. And we, we, our history shows us that. And I'm not, I'm sure telling your listeners anything that they don't know. Um, but we do everything we can to, to lift up that, that these, these, these are human beings. These are, these are people who needed healthcare um, on Monday and can't get that care that they absolutely need today. And I think that 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 we're encouraging everybody to keep keep that at the heart of of everything as we push through and we we fight this fight because we have a fight across the country and and as goes Texas. You know, we we are absolutely in this together. And and so so thank you for having me on um, and and uh, appreciate the opportunity to talk about this a little bit more. Robert. So many questions, but also I know that um, there's a question of this just happened. So pro- some of the questions I want to ask probably are, you know, not determined yet as far as what to do. But it does seem to me that we have uh, an anti-women's health movement because you're right, abortion is part of healthcare. Okay, and there's a and there's a very large number of women of reproductive health in this very large state that now have been deprived of a constitutional right, endangering them tremendously. And it seems like their side is you is pulled out every single stop to do this to interfere with this right, um, and in, in in every which way, including all of the the the, the kind of the, the sketchy folks out in front of health centers for for decades, but the legislative strategy, the legal strategy, the the way the Supreme Court was packed, this is packing too, okay. Um, but I just wonder if our side needs to use more of our leverage, not in a legitimate way, not the way they've done it, but frankly, and maybe this is too early for you to speculate on this. 
there's no constitutional requirement as to how many justices there are, and there's an artificially large number of folks who are against women's human rights here. It's a basic human right. So why not appoint additional Supreme Court justices? The uh, McConnell already got rid of the filibuster in order to do the first Trump appointment. Remember, that's where the filibuster for Supreme Court justices went. It went, or, went away because Republicans took it away to, 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 to start to achieve this in order to appoint the justice that should have been an Obama appointment. Another thing is, you know, federal officials have, have uh, sovereign immunity. We could send federal officials in to make sure that a fundamental constitutional right is available in the state of Texas. Um, and maybe you're thinking of other things, but it just seems like our allies, I know you and I are not elected officials, that we need to get them to up their game because the other side is in many ways, you know, playing with advanced ammunition and we're still, uh, we're still trying to, you know, make up polite arguments. Yeah, it is. Uh... So uh, thank you for all that, Robert. And it is definitely too soon for me to speculate on speculate on some of that stuff. I mean, what what I can say is that you know uh, we are our you know coalition. We're we're, we're always working in coalitions. Um, are going to pull out every stop that we possibly can on on our end. Um, and I think that that we can't we can't say it enough. Elections matter. Elections matter. Elections matter. And and this. This is this is coming home, and I think it's also important for your listeners to know that in Wisconsin we have a criminal abortion ban on our books. So if Roe versus Wade is overturned, abortion immediately becomes illegal in the state of Wisconsin. So I'm going to say that again: if if Roe v. Wade is overturned, abortion immediately becomes illegal in the state of Wisconsin. So people who need an abortion in Wisconsin are going to have to go to other states instead of accessing care uh, in in their home state, and so. We know that a lot of people don't know that. Um, it's not on a lot of radar screens. And, and so we, we need to do everything we can in Texas and we need to do everything we can also right here in Wisconsin. There's legislation that's been introduced. I understand the makeup of the legislature, uh, unfortunately, as much as anyone else. However, we still have to raise our voice. We still have to say that this is important. Over 80% of people say that abortion access should remain legal. And People need to raise their voices and say that, and we need to say it. We need to say it now. So people need to raise their voices and pull out all the stops here in Wisconsin, support our friends in Texas, and in the fall, vote for people who, who will go to bat. Vote for people who will use everything, every tool that they, every tool that they have in their toolbox, every tool, like Robert's talking about, every tool in the toolbox to make sure that people maintain access to this very, very fundamental uh, healthcare that, that, people, that people need. It would happen this session. Uh, so the next, early next year is when it could happen that early. So Matt. With that, we have to take our first break. You're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin, where Citizen Action, you can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to The Battleground Wisconsin. We are joined by Tanya Atkinson, the Director of Planned Parenthood Advocates of Wisconsin. We are talking about the stunning Supreme Court decision just last night around the um, Texas abortion case. Uh, Tanya, I wanted to give you another opportunity to talk to our listeners, particularly about, you know, if they're, you mentioned voting and everything, but just if they, if folks are moved by this and want to get involved, want to maybe get involved with Planned Parenthood, what, what do you recommend, what would you recommend to people uh, to, to 
try to take action and, you know, in addition to the voting that you mentioned in the earlier uh, segment? Yeah, and, and certainly people can always go to our website, um, www.ppawi.org um, to sign up to volunteer. I think some of the most important actions people can be taking right now is one, letting people know that abortion is still accessible in the state of Wisconsin. Um, often when situations like this happen in other states, um, it, it can be confusing about what it means for the state of Wisconsin. So it's really important that people know that abortion is still accessible in the state of Wisconsin. Um, Governor Tony Evers has vetoed a number of abortion restrictions that would have made it all but inaccessible. Um, so it's important that people know that it's still accessible. I add that with the caveat is that it is not as accessible uh, as it should be because there's so many restrictions that have been acted in Wisconsin and people who are already experiencing the health inequities that we see in our healthcare system, um, that, that also translates to access to abortion. So, so it is accessible and, um, and people still have uh, difficulty um, accessing it um, for the reasons that I know that your listeners um, understand. So let people know that it is, it is still accessible, that, that, um, that Governor Evers has vetoed bills in the past uh, that would further restrict access to abortion. Um, people should reach out to their legislature, legislators and tell them that they support the um, Abortion Rights Protection Act that's been introduced here in Wisconsin. And also um, there's legislation at the federal level as well. So people should be reaching out to the legislatures, legislators, sorry. And, and finally, have conversations with people in your life and in your network that about what's happening. So people in our own networks are, are who's gonna trust, you know, we're gonna trust people in our own networks. So it's really important if you are somebody that cares about this issue, that you're somebody that understands this issue. And again, you can go to our website for more information that we have those conversations because people in Wisconsin don't know, a lot of people in Wisconsin don't know that we have a criminal abortion ban on the books. That if Roe v. Wade is overturned, abortion will immediately become illegal in the state of Wisconsin. And, and have those conversations, let people know about it, share those resources um, and you know, share that they, that they can take action. You know, we know, you know poll after poll after poll that's not even done by Planned Parenthood is very clear that 80% of people across the country support access to legal abortion. So, so for, for people, I, you know, I, I uh, am an organizer by heart, even though I'm, I'm with uh, uh, at President of Planned Parenthood Advocates, I'm still an organizer um, with, uh, with different shoes right now. And, you know, so many of the communities that I organized in across the state, people often felt like they were the only one in their neighborhood or they were the only one in their block. I can assure you on this issue, you are not the only one in your neighborhood and you're not the only one in your block. So talk to your friends, talk to your families, talk to your networks. Um, the information and the, the action, speaking up to your legislators are two of the most important things um, that you can be doing right now. Um, and then stay plugged in um, you know, to all the, the organizations who support Planned Parenthood, um, NARAL, uh, a lot of organizations out there, um, reproductive justice organizations led by women of color, stay really plugged into them. Um, and, and really respond, even if you have time to make a click, even if that's all you have time to do is one click, that matters. So any way that you can raise your voice, any way that you can be visible on this issue, it is absolutely going to matter. We need to, we need to create that, that sound. We need, to, we need to keep that energy going and, and we need to make our voices heard. I just had one thing I want to reinforce on what Tanya said, and that is, 
What she's telling us is, is that we have to do everything legitimate and democratic while living up to our values to stop this, and that this is a two-front battle. There's a, there's a uh, more than that. There's a court battle. There's a matter of what the federal Congress can do. But then there's a state legislative angle and a state angle. And she has pointed out that in Wisconsin, if we lose the ultimate court case next U.S. Supreme Court session, then it becomes then then abortion becomes illegal in Wisconsin immediately. The only remedy to that, and it'd be good to do the remedy before it happens, um, would be a, a, a governor and a legislative majority that would that would change the law. And so we need to work to that. It could be bipartisan. For example, if we did, if we had fairer districts, because the the the, the rig maps have purged moderates out of the Republican Party. So it's not a partisan issue. It's a question of how, and we've had bipartisanship in the in history and in the in in my and Tanya's organizing lifetime. And so really we're going to have to pull out all the stops at the state level, and the maps are part of it. But then winning elections for pro-women's health candidates. Yeah, I, thank you, Robert, for saying that, because I, I was going to add that it's also important to get involved in the dem democracy protection efforts, um, the voting rights uh, and ending gerrymandering. That is that is fundamental to long-term access to um, not only reproductive health care, but long-term access to reproductive fundamental reproductive rights, among so many other fundamental rights that we are seeing uh, chipped away right now. Well, Tanya, I want to thank you for agreeing to come on uh, on very short notice this morning after I uh, heard the news uh, and really want to also thank you for the work that you and everyone at Planned Parenthood and all the other groups that work on this issue have been doing. Thank you so much. Yeah, th thanks to you all too for your work. Appreciate you. Have a good day. Thanks everybody all right. for listening too. Keep listening, share it with others. So with that... We really appreciate Tanya uh, jumping on and having that conversation. Um, this is uh, it's a very important issue, uh, but we have to transition uh, now. Uh, we have a few minutes before the break. It's going to give us an opportunity uh, to introduce our next guest and make a transition. It is Labor Day weekend. Uh, we mentioned that at the beginning of the show. And, you know, we at Citizen Action, strong supporters of the right to organize, believe you know, one of the fundamental flaws that exists in our uh, economy and in our society is the lack of power of workers and, and, and also just the lack of any sort of thought of um, their pers coming from their perspective or at least trying to think about it. And we're fortunate in this state that we have uh, COWS, uh, the Center on Wisconsin Strategies, which is for decades now, I think it's been like over 20 years, has been doing this amazing annual report that really takes a deep look from a solid economics perspective on what's happening uh, in the economy from a worker's perspective. And Laura Dresser, who's been working on this for years, and is, I think she can tell me if I'm wrong, the leading person uh, behind this project. Laura, thank you so much for joining us today to talk more about uh, what this COWS report released this week. Thank you so much for having me. And you're right. Um, my very first job when I started at COWS in 1995 was to write the first state of working Wisconsin, which we released in 1996. And so I've been doing this for 26 years, which makes me older than I like to admit, but, but it does mean I know the report. <laughs> so, so tell us, um, you have been releasing the report in 
chunks this week. Uh, it started on Tuesday. Today, you've released more. Um, give us the quick highlights of the top findings in this report. And folks, we'll have a link, of course, on our site so you can go read all the details, but really want to get into the key key parts. And then Robert will follow up with some, some questions. Great. Okay. Um, well, so as you mentioned, Matt, um, we, we've done something new last year because everything was new in COVID. Um, we put the report online um, and tried to use sources that were more um, directly relevant to the last summer situation. This summer, we're, I mean, this Labor Day, we're circling back to some of the things that we didn't do last summer because it was so extraordinary. Um, and, um, and, and we're posting those once a day. Our first day was the jobs day. I think the real theme from jobs um, day, uh, Tuesday this week is, um, you know, COVID really exposed and exacerbated underlying problems in the structures of jobs. And the, we really need to think about and restructure what's going on for our lowest wage workers the structure of wages and benefits and um, hours of work is really, was unsustainable before, remains unsustainable. Um, and this is a chance to really reset that work with public policy and private action. The, um, that's my theme from jobs. <laughs> my theme from unions is um, if you want the negative picture of policy mattering, um, you know, Act 10 changed where changed the relative power of unions um, in the state of Wisconsin. We went from a relatively unionized state um, to a relatively, you know, a state with fewer, a lower share of its labor force um, in unions than the national average. Um, that wasn't inevitable and that could have, um, the state of Minnesota, for example, over the same 10 year period we looked at, uh, union density increased by 5%. So that's just a way to think about what's possible at the state level. And then in wages, um, I've got a long-term trend and a short-term trend. I'll just focus on the short-term. I mean, we've seen wages go up the last couple of years um, in a kind of significant way. And I think that's about the labor market tightness that came in to the pandemic and also maybe bad news about who lost jobs during the pandemic. That's my high level. <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Laura Dresser. We're going to hear a little bit more on uh, some of the highlights, and we'll get right into questions. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin, where citizen action. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin, where citizen action. We're talking with Laura Dresser about the POWs annual State of Working Wisconsin report, which was released this week. And uh, just before the break, Laura was telling us about a couple of the key highlights in the first couple uh, days of releasing the reports. Laura wanted to give you an opportunity to uh, mention any other highlights and then Robert will uh, will have a back and forth here. Yeah, um, I think it's very easy to get um, kind of obsessed with short cycle things. Um, and one of the things I like the report to really help people do is see this longer cycles um, and the short cycle right now, of course, is COVID. It is impossible not to be thinking about the way it has restructured all of the work we're doing um, that some of us have, with privilege have paychecks and, and um, safety in our homes uh, for a long period. Um, the vaccine maybe, you know, kind of changing the, the horizon for a lot of jobs. Um, and there's just a lot of concern about that, but but what really happened in the pandemic is these underlying structures that have been going on for forty years were re, you know kind of re 
uh, revealed um, and exacerbated. And so um, one of the things that, that uh, you know, I looked at this year, um, wage trends over the last 40 years, and it's something I've known, but was really more clear to me this time around. Um, you know, 1979, there was a, the Wisconsin labor market had a very strong um, gender uh, disparity in wages, right? So black men, white men, Hispanic men, wages around 20 bucks an hour. Women, black women, white women, Hispanic women, uh, you know, $6 below that. Um, and the trajectories over the last 10 years, uh, last 40 years, uh, men's wages are down, men, white men by a tiny bit, Hispanic and black men by quite a bit. Um, women's wages are up. And right now, the, that hierarchy, like if you list from highest to lowest wage, it's now a racial and ethnic hierarchy with white uh, men, then white women, and then uh, the workers of color in the state. And so we've really flipped from um, this kind of uh, gender hierarchy in the wage structure to a racialized one. Um, and I just, you know, that's the other one I, I kind of highlight on the 40 year trends. Robert? There's also important and fascinating, a bit of a geek about these things and the State of Working Wisconsin report. Uh, it's hard to know where to start. I mean, I will say this is an anecdote to a lot of the journalistic kind of economic cycle reporting. For example, unemployment is always seen as a gold standard. Your report points out that the number of, there are fewer jobs and the workforce is smaller. And so even if the unemployment rate looks fairly healthy, a lot of people are either unable to find jobs or relatively speaking, or simply out of the workforce because they, 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 they can't for some reason, like they don't have the childcare, they don't have, you know, uh, their, their schools or schools may be closing again because there were not sufficient COVID, uh, you know, safety standards because of the, it's been politicized. And so there's a lot going on here. I think that I'd be interesting to see what happens. You know, your report on wages hasn't come out yet. That is always good. But you had a wage part in the union section. So I've read the first two sections that have been released so far. So you've got the serial release. It's, it's a, that's, no, that's, a, that's a good tactic to keep everyone reading on a longer seats, basis. right? <laughs> yeah. But the union stuff is just so important. And you're right to say, look at long-term trends and then look at what short-term things like COVID do to that rather than only look at the short-term or the quarterly balance sheet, which is the typical way that business leaders too often see the world. Um, just the decimation of unions in the state, right? Where we were well above average, though the whole country had been to unite some degree by the whole kind of post 70s era and the attack on unions, but just they succeeded with their business allies, that is walkers, Republicans, in dramatically reducing unions in the state so we're below the national average. Though there have been declines in all states around us other than Minnesota, I'd be interested to know why you think Minnesota was able to get gained. Though we're the second biggest, we're not the biggest, Iowa's the biggest, which I did not know which is fascinating. Maybe you'll speculate on what's going on in Iowa too. They've been under very conservative rule as well, uh, but they didn't have as many collective bargaining rights going in is my recollection. Uh, and, I don't think they, and, and I think they were a right to work state already. Uh, but 
it really does lower wages. You show the relationship between CEO pay and union density over time, over a long period of time, back to the progressive era, back to the fighting Bob era. So there's a clear relationship and there's a clear relationship between wages and unions. So it is amazing. It just, I, I, I know you're going to, I'll let you talk about the economics of this. I, I jumped too quickly to the politics of is our side is unified in re-rigging the economy on behalf of working people as the other side was in rigging it against them. And I think the other thing that I, you point out all the time is business leaders, WMC may think this is in their interest, but this is depressing their own market. So in fact, they're depressing the economy by doing this. So they think they're winning because their wages are going down, basically. But I guess talk about the decline and then if you have anything, any thoughts on Minnesota and Iowa there, but Minnesota and Minnesota actually gaining only state that uh, peer state you looked at that actually gained union members. How do we emulate that in our sister state to the West and North? Yeah. Um, well, you've, you've uh, loaded up a whole bunch of things and you made me think about one thing that I really want to kick off because I know it's something you're familiar with, um, Robert, but I feel like it's um, we don't always think about how unions work and why unions matter broadly, not just narrow in, narrowly in bargaining units. And so I want to, you know, we make the point that there's a very, um, that as the share of the workforce that's unionized falls, the share of income going to the top 1% goes, has gone up. And people are like, eh, you know, so inequality is happening, but it's not about unions. And I want people to think about how it is actually about unions. Um, you know, you, you, the, the narrow thing that people know is that people in unions earn more than people um, in non-recognized, non-represented work sites, right? So for members, yes, wages go up. And I think everybody knows that. But there's two other ways unions work, and that's better for everybody. One is that they if they get sufficient density in a sector, they raise wages inside and outside represented shops because the non-union places want to you know raise wages to avoid being unionized they also raise wages to compete for the workforce you can see this in hotels in las vegas where the union contract sets the standard for all workers right so that's unions moving up the wages of workers they don't represent right and that happens only when you get density um, when you have enough workers represented that the, that the, it begins to, the contract begins to establish the floor. So losing density means we lose that positive spillover to working people. And the other way is, is politically, unions have fought for the Affordable Care Act, fought for higher minimum wages, fought for policies that matter to working people, whether they're in unions or not. And again, this is why unions matter broadly to all of us, not just narrowly to their members. And um, so I wanted to kind of kind of fill in that story. You asked me, um, Robert, maybe to um, make a little guess about Minnesota <laughs> and, um, and the difference with Iowa. Our losses, um, so you're right. I was one of the original right to work states back to the 1940s. Um, they did do an Act 10 style public sector deunionization because more of their union um, membership was in public sectors. Of uh, public sectors, they decimated more of their share of unionization by decimating public sector unions. That's, I think, the Iowa story. Um, it's not. Yeah, we're we're both really bad. <laughs> 
um, and then the Minnesota story is, I think probably though I haven't dug into it, you know, um, this kind of combination about just not being as hostile to unions, being supportive of public sector unions, um, where the density is high, um, and being more supportive of um, a kind of growing economy and growing public role in that economy. I guess the answer is somewhere in there, but I, I don't know for sure. Yeah, and I'd also think it has to do that they've had <laughs> legislative and majorities and executive branches that actually saw the value of unions that had read uh, either your reports or the counterparts in Minnesota as to why this is in Minnesota's interest, right? And I know they also have good research uh, hub in the Twin Cities and, and the U of M up there. So I assume they have, they have people who do this as well. Um, I know we're coming to a to a close. Can you give us any hint on the wages? I mean, you don't have to reveal the whole report. It's coming out today, I believe. But anything you can say, anything, any hint you can give us or teaser? Yeah, it's up. It is up today, so folks can go to it today. Um, and uh, if you go to workingwi.org, that's where all of this is. Um, and the wages, you know, I think really digging into the disparity, we actually managed this year to put a tableau graph up there so you can pick which racial, ethnic, gender groups you want to look at and which years you want to look at them. Um, but if you look at the 40-year trajectory, you're going to see um, this kind of growth in women's wages, the decline in men's wages, but this deep racial, ethnic division that the state um, is so often defined by when I look at the, when I look at the data. Well, Laura Dresser, we really appreciate you coming on, talking to us about the report. We know you have, uh, you got to get going. Uh, folks, please read the report. Um, it is chock full of information. Laura, thanks so much for everything you all do at COWS and for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate um, getting to talk about this. Great. And folks, again, we'll have contact information, all that on the website. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin with Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Really, really fortunate to have had uh, two outstanding guests in our first three segments. But um, Robert, it's just you and I for the uh, for the road home here in our final segment. But we got a number of very important things that I, I wanted to get your thoughts on. Um, look, we have been talking about COVID. We've been talking about vaccine. We've been talking about masks endlessly. Uh, Robert, there was some news this week related to that. WEAC, the largest uh, union here in the state that represents most of the uh, 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 educators uh, and other support staff in schools around the state, came out this week calling for vaccine and mask mandates. Um, this is big news. Yeah, and it's nice to see leadership going on here because, you know, Governor Evers, legislative Democrats are necessary allies, but it's our job as progressives to urge them forward as, uh, as tough love, I would say. Uh, and so it's great to see WEAC coming out and saying that there should be mask mandates and there should be vaccine mandates. And WEAC is is known for being careful, and you're going to be careful if you have a large membership that has a lot of different opinions, right? So I'm not even there in a different position than we are. Our membership is is strongly in the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren wing of the party, and so much more universally than the whole teachers union would be. 
And remember, this, this, it does come with risk. Leadership comes with risk. They have members, I'm sure, who are anti-vax and who, who don't want to wear face masks. And they don't just represent yes. the teachers. They represent Robert, other members, educators and support Members staff. are removing their membership today. Uh, as you know, they're out there, right? As a former union, trust me, there are members calling today right. complaining about this. So, yes. It will cost. So this is using all the tools you have. And they are, no matter what the right wants to say, they are the people who speak for educators because they are a democratic organization of educators, okay? That's why you can't just say you're with educators and cherry pick the right wing ones and say, yeah, I'm with the educators, look at these good folks. And so this is what's necessary. We need, as we talked about on Roe versus Wade, we need our leaders on our side to use all the tools they can because it's very clear that we need vaccine, vaccination mandates at every workplace. The, the, the case for schools is overwhelming. And, and, and there, there's an analysis out from the CDC that says 75% of, of kids under 12 are gonna have COVID in three months. And it is sending kids to the hospital now, this variant is, and there'll be a, maybe a worse variant yeah. coming. There's evidence of that now. And so we need to have masks and we need to vaccinate all the employees because unvaccinated employees are actually spreading it to our kids. And that spreads to their families when they bring it home. It's outrageous. Robert, I wanted to mention another reason why I think the leadership of WEAC here is important is um, this is happening in the context, the broader context of a wave of violence against educators, public health officials, but also school boards. We talked about this last week with Claire. Uh, There's just been a, uh, there's a clear, let's just say it, the Tea Party uh, of the modern Tea Party, like right now, their effort is at school boards. And so for WEAC to step up and, you know, in the face of this, knowing that a lot of school boards are now ducking because everything's been thrown on them throughout this pandemic. We've talked about that. There's been a lack of leadership up top forcing all these school boards to make these decisions. Uh, We do need leadership to step up. Uh, Otherwise, this won't happen. And if you don't have the mandates, people will not wear the masks. They just, if the mandates aren't there, they won't be worn. There's, we've seen this everywhere. Um, So I think that's important context. There was a parent on National Polk Radio NPR this um, Thursday morning that her child was in the hospital, young kid. Um, the family had been careful. Oh, they're all vaccinated, masks in public, following everything, but they couldn't control the school and the school was not up to snuff. I mean, and so she was saying, they were asking her how her feelings because the poor kid went to the hospital and, and wasn't on a ventilator, but you know, it was really bad. And so she just said, it's very clear. We've learned that people won't do it unless they're required, that there are too many people who won't. And so we just need to go with that. But here's the problem, Matt, right? You could say we better not do it because of this violent response and, you know, or or threatening response or bullying response. A lot of people are being bullied, right? So that they, they, and a lot of school administrators are not doing mask mandates or vaccination mandates because they've been bullied. And so Tanya and I, Tanya Atkinson, Planned Parenthood and I had a conversation in the first segment on, on abortion rights about us needing to use as progressives every legitimate democratic lever, the other side is not so constrained. And if you've seen the videos, there's video after video now on cable news, on YouTube, 
of seemingly crazed anti-vax white right-wing parents. And the right wing has deliberately unified and augmented the anti-vax movement for their own purposes of mobilization, not caring what the consequences are. And you see it on Fox News prime time every night. Um, that, uh, that's bullying, and we've got to stand up to it. And you've got to wonder when you see these videos that these were black folks, brown folks, refugees from uh, from a non-white country like Afghanistan, the police wouldn't be standing by. And this is parallel, actually, Matt, with new reports this week that about how the FBI has basically refused to take white supremacy and white and, and right right wing racist violence or white wing violence generally seriously. So there's this real bias where you have the privilege to bully people and threaten them and yell in their face, I know where you live and pull their mask off forcibly. But if you were a black person, they'd get the billy clubs out or worse. And it's got to be one or the other. Either we're going to have policing that is doesn't allow someone to do that regardless, or we are going to have the same treatment of everyone. And it really does point to this. The right wing view is not that everyone has a right to do this, but that the people they've decided are important, their constituency does. It's a kind of white privilege and it's really disgusting. Well, Robert, we, uh, we have a few minutes remaining in the show and I wanted to, before we close, make sure we talk a little bit about what's been going on in Congress around both the, uh, infrastructure bill, but the budget, uh, the budget reconciliation bill, the 3.5 trillion package, all known as Build Back Better. Um, we've been talking a lot about it. We've been involved in a lot of events, supporting, promoting. We see this is uh, critically important. Um, Want to get your comments? Uh, we have t- you have talked often, and we're always reminding people that you know when you see Mansion and Cinema and these other moderate Democrats out there dickering about price tags or this or that, they're not really having an intellectual conversation that this is really because the true power behind them are these lobbyists from corporate America. And there's a lot more new information out this week about that connection. Uh, Tell our listeners more. Well, that's the thing. Uh, Journalists and pundits treat it like a philosophical debate that is like a, like a seminar room at, at UW-Madison, instead of understanding who funds the campaigns of Republicans and moderate Democrats. The only ones that are not funded this way are the ones who use clean, small donations like a Bernie Sanders, okay? Or people who turn down that kind of money and are still in office. And it, they are, there's certainly evidence of those connections, but we also know now that as expected, since this is New Deal level structural reform, that is the full $3.5 trillion budget resolution, which is the complete Build Back Better agenda of President Biden, it is producing the biggest lobbying, uh, the most giant lobbying campaign from every business interest imaginable. And the question is whether the thin Democratic majority in UD can stand up. We've been doing great. In other words, we've been on track. We even got Cinema and Mansion on board for the budget resolution set to the House. But There's a long way to go, and this has to happen in September and by the latest early October. And so, frankly, since corporations didn't lobby at this level, there wasn't big corporate lobbying by any modern standard until the 1970s because of the environmental consumer rights movement. It's changed politics. We've never done big structural reform when we had this kind of lobbying, public relations, and campaign spending apparatus behind it with the right deregulating campaign finance. 
So this is a huge test. And the only answer is us mobilizing. They need the Democrats need our backs because the only answer to all this money and influence, and we won't we won't take the first step on climate and there'll be a climate genocide. And I not to mention all the other great things on health care, paid family leave, child care, the child tax credit that cut child poverty in half. All of those are on the line. And I didn't even get to all of them. And but it, it relies on us. And I don't think I mean, we're trying. We're having events that's in action. We need more people getting engaged. This is an historic opportunity. We don't want to be totally negative because so far this new coalition between left and center under the Biden administration is doing a great job and is on track to do this. But this is the final mile, and that's the hardest mile by far. And corporate America is not going to make it easy. And Joe Manchin and the wor- of the world need to not be allowed to basically take the money and 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 under and sabotage this opportunity. Folks, hope you enjoy your Labor Day weekend. Let's remember this weekend, right? We are we all have our differences. We sometimes see the world from different places, but a lot of what we're talking about here is we all sort of, we all need to have, as uh, SEIU folks used to say, some bread and roses, right? And part of what we're trying to push in Congress and part of what's in this package is a little bit of uh, bread and time for some roses. Please folks, get out this weekend, spend some time with your family, uh, if you can, if there is a Labor Day event in your community, participate. I know they're a little light this year because uh, of COVID. But with that, folks, we got to wrap up this Battleground Wisconsin. Huge thanks to Tanya Atkinson from Planned Parenthood Advocates of Wisconsin joining us. And, of course, Laura Dresser from COWS and their outstanding annual report, Working Wisconsin. Check it out. We'll see you next week at the Battleground Wisconsin. 